Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. The recorded and documented history of North America goes back scantly 500 years. Many people in areas in the U.S. cannot track back their histories more than two or three hundred years. However, in the Western Mediterranean, there are three small specks of land, Gozo, Camino, and Malta, as well as a few other uninhabited lumps of rock. This seemingly unimpressive island chain has found itself time and time again at the crossroads of history over the last 8,000 years. And tonight I'm going to bring you some of the most astounding structures and tales from this mysterious land. Good morning, everyone. I hope that you're happy, healthy, and well wherever you are. I hope you're safe. I hope those of you in the Northern Hemisphere are enjoying your fall weather, the autumn temperatures that hopefully have brought a bit of respite from those places that are always so hot. In the Southern Hemisphere, it's starting to slowly get into spring. We had daylight savings time today, so now we'll have an extra hour of light in the evening, which will, will be quite nice. And uh, it will definitely help keep some of those uh, winter blues at bay as it starts to warm up. So as you heard tonight, folks, I'm going to do something a little different, and I'm going to be focusing on some of the legends and myths around Malta. Now, I heard many years ago, must be 30 years or close to it now, I heard some of these tales about Malta, and so it's always interested me. And I've dug in and really found some, some good tales for you. One other note I just wanted to pass on to you is that I've made a decision that for the month of October, we're going to do things a little different. So as most of you know, October in many people's minds symbolizes kind of Halloween and something a little bit different than the rest of the year. So for the month of October, I'm not going to do any UFO programs. I've decided that I'm going to do four different programs in and around Halloween-related topics, something that you may find of interest. Some of them you very well would have heard of before, or at least some of the subject matter, and some of them you wouldn't have. So when I do the next program, which will be the first one in October, I will then also announce to you the four programs and kind of the scheduling around them. It's something a bit ambitious to try and cram this all into one month, but it's something that uh, I really want to do, and I think that you'll enjoy it. I think you'll learn something new. I know I will undoubtedly from all of my other research uh, on programs in the past, I'm sure I'll learn something new about these subjects as well. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Now, one other note I just want to make off the top of the show. Now, in the world of kind of the paranormal, the unexplained, the strange, the mysterious that I deal with, there seems to be two topics that really get under people's skin. And when I say under people's skin, I mean skeptics and debunkers and people who don't believe a lot of this stuff and believe it's things like... Uh, you know, weather balloons, people being drunk, mass hallucinations, things like that. And those two topics that I see that really seem to bring out the, 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 nasty, the nasty side in these people, one of them is UFOs, but specifically saying that UFOs are extraterrestrial creatures and they either are on Earth now or have been in the past. And the other thing that it really seems to be that brings out the knives are giants. So I'm going to pre-warn you that tonight's program, I'm going to discuss giants. And as always, you know, I leave the decision making up to you. But basically, what I'm saying is, if you don't like it, then don't listen to this program because I'm going to be covering giants. And just because a few people want to try and 
push people around online doesn't mean that I'm not going to cover over something like this. But yeah, it is fascinating, I find, that out of all of the subject matters, I mean, you know, there are people out there that will talk about some really far out there conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah, no problem there. But when you start talking about giants and the fact that giants may have existed in the past, or if you talk about, as I say, extraterrestrial visitation, it really sets people on edge, certain people in the skeptical slash debunking communities. And it does make me wonder if maybe it's because it's a bit closer to home than some of the other things. Maybe there's a bit more about it that they don't want to talk about. So aside from that, folks, uh, I just wanted to give you a bit of a heads up on that. I want to give the traditional shout outs to some real close supporters and friends of the program. So to Eddie and his family in California, to Chris and Max in Illinois, to my Chicago land listeners, and also the Quite Unusual podcast. Thank you so much for supporting the program. To Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, as always, I really appreciate your support. To Adriana and Nico in Texas, thank you so much for your support. To my Montana family and to the Fidianga tribe, thank you all. And thank you to anyone who's taking their time to listen to this. And also, I wanted to give a shout out and a thank you to Russell over at uh, Hangar 18 Radio, who was so kind as to promote one of the latest programs about the Brown Mountain Lights on his platform. Now, I'm still working, you know, to get some clout, as they would say on social media, folks. I don't have thousands of followers on any of the on any of the social platforms. And so anyone who shares and passes along what I do, I really appreciate it. It really does help me. Uh, if you're looking for ways to support the program, as always, folks, you can, you, you know, you can like and follow me on Instagram. So you can follow the Paranormal Sun at Instagram. You can follow the Facebook group that I've got set up. You can go over to theparanormalsun.com. I've had lots of people sign up over there to the mail subscription. And again, I, I always do apologize for this. As I say, I'm a bit of a tech Cro-Magna. I'm not quite a Neanderthal, but um, I'm far from an expert. So I do believe when I post new blogs, then people are emailed to say that I posted up a new blog entry. So thank you so much for that. As for other ways you can support the program, if you're feeling generous, of course, you can go and support the program on Patreon, or you can just go to theparanormalsun.com and you can make a donation on the PayPal link there. Anything that is donated, as always, will go to the running of this program, some of the costs involved, things like the web hosting, the ink and paper, and that that it takes to prepare for the shows, the cost of the internet, the electricity, all those sorts of things. They do add up, but as long as I can support it myself, I will. But if you feel so kind as to donate something to the program, I would really appreciate it. And there is a few other things that you can do that don't cost you anything. One of them is, if you like what you hear, if you like the things that I cover and some of the topics, and if you like the way that I do the show, share it with a friend. You know, let a friend of yours know who may be like-minded. Even if it's an episode here or there, I fully understand that not all subjects are everyone's cup of tea, but that's why we cover it. I want to really give you that wide and broad stroke of the paranormal, the unexplained, and the mysterious in this world, just so that you're exposed to all of it. And what you choose to believe, as always, is up to you. 
Another thing you can do, of course, is you can go on to Apple or Spotify or any of the other websites and give the program, uh, you know, a review and give it, uh, you know, some star ratings, whatever you feel like doing. And again, anything like that is always greatly appreciated from me. And as I say, thank you to everyone around the world who listens to this program on a weekly basis. It really means the world to me. I try and do my best to bring up new and interesting content for you. So with all that out of the way, folks, I really hope that you will enjoy this episode. And first and foremost, as always, for those of you who may be new to the program, I'm going to cover over some articles that I cover over every week. Uh, every week, I pick out three or four different articles. And this segment is titled The News of the Damned. So for those of you who may not know, Charles Fort was one of my real inspirations that got me into some of these unexplained and strange phenomenon from around the world. And he was one of the founding fathers of kind of modern paranormal ufology, etc. Now, Charles Ford is one of the first people who gathered lots of newspaper and magazine articles and information from all over the world, compiled them into books, which then allowed us to read up on some of these topics and, you know, make our own decisions, make up our own mind. But just to really paint with a broad brush, how many strange things happen on a day-to-day basis. Now, Charles Fort considered anything that was excluded or ignored by standard science as damned data. Therefore, this segment is always called the News of the Damned as an homage to Charles Fort. And tonight, as always, tonight I picked out four four different uh, articles for you because one of them is an update on a former topic that I've covered several times and I kind of cover on an ongoing basis. And as always, I'll have links of all four of these in the show notes. So without any further ado, folks, I'm going to now get into the news of the damned. And the first of the four articles for this program is the update. So this is about the Forest Fen treasure. And I'm sure many of you know about the Forest Fen treasure, especially with me going on about it. But for those of you who haven't heard about it, Several years ago, a gentleman named Forrest Fenn, who was a retired art dealer, he had cancer, and at that time he thought it was terminal. So he went out in nature and he buried about $1.3 million worth of gold and jewels in a bronze chest somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. He then wrote his memoirs and released notes in there, uh, a bit of a modern-day treasure map, some clues and riddles that would allow someone to try and find this. And Mr. Fenn's stated goal was to really get people out in nature and get out and enjoy the beautiful Mountain West part of the United States. And that is an admirable goal because it is something else. It's, it's gorgeous. That's my neck of the woods where I'm originally from, and it is a gorgeous area. Well, anyway, there has been a bit of a controversy in the last few months. As it's been claimed, it was claimed by Mr. Fenn himself that the treasure was discovered and that the person that discovered it was from out east and they didn't want anyone to know who it was. However, there wasn't any real hard evidence given that this treasure was discovered, and it led to a few people you know, kind of wondering, has it really been found? Did Forrest Fenn go and get it himself and just claim that someone you know, discovered it? And then there was also you know, thoughts about some people like me who have postured that perhaps because of the five people who had died looking for the treasure, Mr. Fenn had simply said it was found Maybe he was under pressure from authorities to kind of say, hey, look, it's already been found, so stop hunting. To add to all of that, Mr. Fenn then passed away not long ago, a month or two ago. 
which has added a bit more mystery to the whole pot, meaning that, you know, you can't exactly get much more out of someone who's passed away. However, I do have an update for you tonight. There has apparently the purported founder of this treasure has come out of hiding. And this article is from Coast to Coast AM. And it's from Tim Benall. Again, for those of you who don't know, he's kind of the web guru over there. And basically anything off of coast to coast am.com is going to be bylined by Tim Benall. So without further ado, I'll get into it. And it says, Fen Treasure Finder Breaks Silence. It says, an individual who appears to have been the person that found Forrest Fen's legendary treasure has broken their silence and shared details about the remarkable experience. Calling themselves simply The Finder, the mysterious treasure hunter penned a lengthy blog post at the website Medium in which they reflected on the eccentric art dealer's recent passing and provided some insights into how they ultimately determined the location of his elusive riches. The writer also included several never-before-seen images of Fenn inspecting the recovered cash, which would seem to confirm that, indeed, the author was the one who discovered the treasure. Although the finder did not reveal the exact location where the riches were found, they explained that they, dedu they deduced the area by figuring out where Fenn wished, wished to die, since the creator of the chase had long said that he hoped to be buried with the treasure, and then it took me many months to figure out the exact spot. Specifically, the writer said that they had spent about 25 full days of failure looking for the treasure at that location before finding it, and mused that the, the moment in which they solved the mystery was not the triumphant Hollywood ending some surely envisaged. It just felt like I had just survived something and was fortunate to come out the other end. As for how they came up with the initial idea for solving where the treasure was hidden, the finder did not specifically say, but did seem to hint that it came to them by way of a couple of subtle slip-ups that Fenn made to reporters which apparently haven't been caught by anyone besides me. In praising the art dealer's tremendous generosity, the writer marveled that, in a final act of selfishness, in what should have been his moment of redemption, he went to great lengths to protect my anonymity. To that end, the finder, the finder gave very little bio, biographical information about themselves, aside from the fact that they are a millennial and have student loans to pay off, so it wouldn't be prudent to continue to own the Fen treasure. What will become of the riches now has yet to be determined, as the finder indicated that they intend to sell it and express the opinion that it should belong to a person or institution who will fully appreciate owning such an incredible thing. However, they also noted that Forrest had a final wish for where he thought the treasure should end up, and that they are currently trying to make that happen. Regardless of what ultimately becomes of the riches, the finder promises that I'll be back to answer some questions, but stressed that they do not plan on revealing where the treasure was hidden, since they hope for the location to remain pristine, meaning that the ultimate answer to the mystery of the Fen treasure may continue on for quite some time. Now folks, again, anyone can go online and claim these things. However, him having the photos of himself with Forrest Fenn and Fenn, you know, looking at the treasure. I haven't seen these photos yet myself. In fact, I only just came across this article tonight, so I haven't had a chance to do any further investigation. But I will have a bit of a look at it because, as I say, on a scale of 1 to 10, you know, 10 being he found it and one being I'm not sure, you know, or I don't think he found it. I was always sitting at about kind of a four or five, simply because, as I said, with the pandemic and everything else and five people having already died, I wouldn't have been surprised if someone in authority, you know, meaning maybe the the 
governor of New Mexico or one of his uh, attaches or maybe in the police department, maybe they went to Mr. Fenn and just said, hey, can you just say it's already been found so that we don't have to deal with people going out in the wilderness and, and you know, dying and us having to look for them in the middle of this pandemic? But, you know, again, I reserve judgment as always. And if these photos are what he purports them to be, then I might just change my mind on it. And again, I'm not saying that it wasn't discovered. I'm just saying I had some questions that haven't been answered up till now. So maybe these will be the answers that, uh, you know, that I myself need and many others do as well. Now, the next three are all kind of new news here, something interesting and things that I haven't, you know, I haven't at least heard about these cases. So the first one is also from coast to coast am.com. And this one is titled security camera finds small humanoids or sorry, films, small humanoids. And this one says a strange piece of home security camera footage circulating online appears to show a pair of bipedal humanoid creatures lurking in the driveway of a home in Texas. Listen very closely, uh, my Texas listeners. The curious video was reportedly filmed outside of a resident in Dallas late last month and was posted to Reddit this week by the bewildered homeowner who was hoping that someone could identify the oddities. In the footage, the diminutive visitors can be seen seemingly scurrying around on two feet at the end of a driveway before disappearing behind a car. Some observers online have suggested that the anomalous forms could be small humanoid creatures which exist in the folklore of cultures around the world. Known as the Cheneque in Mexico, a Tukulish in Zimbabwe, and the Pukawaji among North American native tribes, these mysterious dwarf-like beings exist in a realm somewhere between cryptozoology and the spirit world, with many legends ascribing sinister motives to the entities. Meanwhile, skeptical viewers have offered a more down-to-earth explanation for what was filmed by the security camera by arguing that the creatures are probably just birds hopping around in the driveway late at night. Others have suggested that the anomalies are in fact merely a CGI creation and that the puzzling footage is simply a clever hoax. What's your take on the weird video? So folks, there is a video embedded in the link. And as I say, I'll have the link over in the show notes for this episode. Now, I'm just going to quickly watch a little bit of this and give you my initial reaction as I watch it. So it's uh, a link and it shows kind of like a side alley almost... Um, piece of footage and whatever these creatures are they are very short they only come up to about the top of the wheel of the car so you know standard that'd be about kind of 20 ish 25 inches and whatever it is that's walking on two feet they definitely seem adept at it it's not something that would not normally walk on two feet is what I'm saying so you know how sometimes you will see something like a bear stand up on its back legs and you know, it doesn't really look like it's comfortable doing that, and it only does it for a short time. Whatever these creatures are, they are kind of strolling back and forth. Now, the video is black and white. Uh, it could very well be CGI. I don't know that much about it. The creatures are casting shadows from what I can see. Um, they don't really look like birds walking around to me, and I could be wrong, but I know that here in New Zealand at night, Birds aren't generally out wandering around. They tend to be kind of tucked up in the trees. And I can tell you that's part of the reason why I like to ten, uh, you know, record these programs at night because there's no bird sound to have to try and cope with as I record. Uh, 
But nonetheless, interesting video. And again, there'll be a link over there for you to have a look at. And again, I found it quite interesting. Now, the third article is a very interesting one. And this one is definitely in the vein of Halloween. And this is from the Mirror UK, which is uh, mirror.co.uk. And this one is by Alan Weston and Lorraine King. And this one is titled, The Mysterious Cursed Doll is Tied by a Rope. Oh, sorry. Cursed doll with evil sign nailed, nailed to chest is hung from tree, spooking locals. It says, The mysterious cursed doll is tied by a rope to a small piece of wood and is covered by a sign which reads, quote, Evil live, unquote, here. So, sorry, evil live here, unquote. So they've spelt, they've misspelled lives. So it says, Evil live here on a tree in Old Swan, Liverpool. And there's a photo of this doll, and it is, you know, something very interesting so it says locals are spooked by a creepy doll that has been nailed to a tree close to a busy road junction in liverpool the mysterious doll is tied by a rope onto a small piece of wood and is covered by a sign which reads evil live here it is also pinned up by a rusty nail with a stake through the figure's heart liverpool echo reports it was first spotted by don hall who passes the sign in the old swan area regularly on her way to work she said, it's baffling everybody. I've lived here 15 years and have never seen anything like this before. It looks like it's been there for a while. The nails are all rusted. It blends in with the tree and it is really, really scary. Now I've taken pictures of it. I feel spooked and I'm wondering, am I cursed now? It's been put on social media and everyone's baffled in the Swan area about it. One possible explanation for the weird doll is that it is a reference to the discovery of a mass grave in nearby St. Oswald Street. A total of 3,561 bodies were found in coffins piled 16 deep by council workmen in 1973 and were subsequently cremated. It was a popular local rumor that many of the dead had holes in their chests as if a stake had been driven into them. But why the bodies were buried there remains a mystery. So yeah, folks, um, something quite short and sweet for you uh, interesting nonetheless and you know it does kind of harken to a voodoo doll type look and this doll has a nail through its face that kind of makes it look like it has a nose a nail straight through its chest one in each shoulder and it looks like one in each leg kind of holding it up to this wall or up to this tree sorry it is interesting and as i say i'll have a link in the show notes so that you can go over and have a look if you are interested in it but uh yeah it's uh, something straight out of a horror movie, that is for sure. Now, the fourth and final article for the News of the Damned on this program is something quite interesting. So for those of you who are longtime listeners, you'll know that Ancient Man and Mysteries of Antiquity are one of my real joys and just something that I'm always fascinated by. And so this one kind of fits right in that niche. And this one is titled, this is from Sky News. So uh, news.sky.com, and as always, as I said, there'll be a link in the show notes for you. And this one is titled, 120,000-year-old human footprints found in Saudi Arabia. The footprints of humans, elephants, and other animals were found around an ancient dry lake in Saudi Arabia by Aisha Zahid, news reporter. Sorry, I'm just looking at the photo of the footprints, folks. And then it says, sets of 120,000-year-old footprints belonging to humans have been discovered in Saudi Arabia. The set of seven human footprints 
found around an ancient dry lake in the northern region of Tabuk, are the earliest evidence of humans in the Arabian Peninsula. Experts believe that they are the footprints of at least two people and say they could help understand the routes taken by humans out of Africa. The new research suggests inland routes following lakes and rivers may have been particularly important to humans, leaving the continent, according to Matthew Stewart from the Max Planck Institute for Chemical Ecology. He added, footprints are a unique form of fossil evidence in that they provide snapshots in time, typically representing a few hours or days, a resolution we tend not to get from other records. The researchers think the footprints belong to modern humans on the basis of stature and mass inferred from them rather than Neanderthals who aren't known to have been in the region at that time. Mr. Stewart said, We know that humans were visiting this lake at the same time these animals were, and usually and unusually for the area, there's no stone tools. It appears that these people were visiting the lake for water resources and just to forage at the same time as the animals. Footprints of elephants and other animals were also identified alongside 233 fossils. Today, the Arabian Peninsula consists of vast deserts, which would have been uninhabitable for early humans and the animals that they hunted. However, over the last decade, researchers have found that the area experienced much greener and humid conditions due to natural variation in the climate. Richard Clark Wilson from Royal Holloway, University of London, said, at certain times in the past, the deserts that dominate the interior of the peninsula transformed into expansive grasslands with permanent freshwater lakes and rivers. The presence of large animals such as elephants and hippos, together with open grasslands and larger water resources, may have made northern Arabia a particularly attractive place to humans moving between Africa and Eurasia, added Michael Petroglia from the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History. Now again, folks, I will have a link to this in the show notes. Look, many things on this program, I try to kind of leave the decision-making up to you. And I'm not really passing judgment on this article, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. As to me, my personal opinion is that although many scholars and academics, and I'm not saying all, but many, in the establishment seem to like to postulate that we kind of know almost everything about what's happened in Earth's history, but more importantly, during the time that mankind's been around. Me, myself, um, I'm a lot less unsure of those kind of statements and thoughts. Now, there are genuinely honest men of science who will come forward and say there are large areas of history that we have little to no understanding of. But it seems that in general, you, you tend to hear much more from the self-assured scholars that act as though we know 95 to 99 percent of everything that's occurred. I would posit that it's the other way around. We may know 5 to 10 percent and 95 to uh, 90 to 95 percent of what's gone on on this planet are all things that we don't really know about or we don't know the full history of. So anyway, folks, uh, it's always interesting. And I will cover over some more things like this in the future. Again, when I can get a chance to move through some of these topics. Now, on that note, I will definitely be covering over some of those mysteries very shortly as we discuss the mysterious archipelago of Malta. Malta, there's an exotic destination for you. It sounds very familiar. 
and yet most of us would be hard-pressed to recite more than a few small facts, or maybe some trivia about the Maltese Falcon or the Maltese Cross. But there's little out of the ordinary, and most definitely not much in the paranormal or unexplained realms in Malta, right? Any country at the crossroads of histories such as Malta has experienced hundreds, if not thousands of years of bloodshed, and warfare will certainly have its share of ghost and phantom stories. But dig a bit deeper, and you will find some of the most astounding tales that the Mediterranean Basin has to offer. First, I want to give you a brief rundown of why Malta is so well-known and such an iconic location despite it being the world's 10th smallest country. Now, the following is from Wikipedia. Malta, officially known as the Republic of Malta, is a southern European island country consisting of an archipelago in the Mediterranean Sea. It lies 80 kilometers, or 50 miles, south of Italy, 284 kilometers, or 176 miles east of Tunisia, and, 33, and 333 kilometers, or 207 miles, north of Libya. With a population of about 515,000, over an area of only 316 kilometers, or 122 square miles, Malta is the world's 10th smallest country in area, but its fourth most densely populated sovereign country. Its capital is Valletta, which is the smallest national capital in the European Union by area, at only 0.8 kilometers or 0.31 square miles. Malta has been inhabited since approximately 5900 BC. Its location in the center of the Mediterranean has historically given it great strategic importance as a naval base, with a succession of powers having contested and ruled the islands, including the Phoenicians, Carthaginians, Romans, Greeks, Arabs, Normans, Argonese, Knights of St. John, French, and British. Most of these foreign influences have left some sort of mark on the country's ancient culture. Malta became a British colony in 1813, serving as a way station for ships and the headquarters for the British Mediterranean fleet. It was besieged by the Axis powers during World War II and was an important allied base for operations in North Africa and the Mediterranean. The British Parliament passed the Malta Independence Act in 1964 giving Malta independence from the UK as the state of Malta, with Queen Elizabeth II as its head of state and the Queen. The country became a republic in 1974. It has been a member state of the Commonwealth of Nations and the UN since its independence, and joined the EU in 2004. It became part of the Eurozone Monetary Union in 2008. So as you can see, Malta has had a rich and varied history, going back at least 8,000 years. There are some who claim its history goes back much further, however. Laypersons and experts alike have always wondered how the Maltese archipelago houses seven of the oldest megalithic temples in the world, especially considering the fact that the islands are really tiny. The oldest temple, Gigantesia, can be found in Gozo. It's the second oldest known human-made structure in the world. Atlantis one of the most popular local legends is the one that states how Malta may just be the true location for Atlantis. Malta has incredibly ancient structures that are now dated as over 9,000 years old and are said by Orthodox archaeologists to potentially be the oldest stone ruins in the world. Malta once had huge animals like elephants. This shows evidence of having been destroyed in a huge cataclysmic wave. Author Joseph Elul and others have proposed that Malta was part of a great civilization of the past, possibly Atlantis. Malta was probably connected to other parts of the Mediterranean when a huge wave from the Atlantic filled the Mediterranean. The island is far too small now to have been Atlantis, 
but it shows that the Mediterranean was a very different place 12,000 years ago. This was partly proven in 2013, when marine scientists at the University of Malta discovered that 20,000 years ago, the Maltese islands were indeed much larger and were connected to Sicily by a land bridge. The only account we have about the city of Atlantis that is to be considered as historical source can be found in Plato's dialogues, more specifically, the Timaeus. In this dialogue, we witness a conversation between Critias and Socrates, and the former says to the latter, but afterwards there occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and a single night of misfortune, all your warlike men and a body sank into the earth, and the island of Atlantis in like manner disappeared in the depths of the sea. Many experts thus believe that a tsunami was behind the eradication of this ancient city, and that this happened during the same time it is believed that Malta was struck by catastrophe. To continue adding to the points above, there is ample evidence to suggest that Malta and its little sister islands were part of Europe and or Africa, as cart ruts lead straight to the sea and off clifftops. I've seen these photos, folks, and it's pretty spine-tingling to see these cart ruts in the stone that go off of cliffs and into the sea. They just go down to the water's edge and disappear. And these have been documented for well over 100 years that people have seen these. So after being struck by some sort of natural disaster, such as an earthquake or volcanic eruptions, the islands were cut off from the mainland. Malta is so small, it could not possibly provide large animals with enough food and water. Heck, there isn't much land for them at all. And yet, archaeologists have discovered huge animal fossils in caves around the island, most prominently in Gar Dalam. And we're, we're talking fossils belonging to elephants, bears, reindeer, hippopotamus, and more. And one of the things, folks, to remember is that Plato said that there were elephants in Atlantis. That's one of the things that has to tick the box if you're going to say conclusively that you've found Atlantis. This leaves us little reason to deny that Malta was ever struck by a terrible disaster. Malta's ancient structures, and there are 35 to be exact, date back over 9,000 years and are believed to be the oldest ruins in the world by many Orthodox archaeologists. Also, in Plato's Dialogues, there is mention that the remains are scattered on several islands, and guess what? All of Malta's temples are scattered around its islands. Archaeologists discovered that the story of Atlantis is engraved on a wall in the Temple of Neith at Sais, Egypt. The story makes a reference to an area in the Western Ocean, which no longer exists and is now called the Mediterranean Sea. Once again, Malta meets this criteria. A little underwater site was discovered in 1999 off the coast of St. Julian and seems like it could possibly be a megalithic temple. Tracks on the seabed, resembling cart ruts, were also observed at the site. If this is real, it is proof that the area was not underwater prehistorically. The site is referred to as Gebel Gol Baharam, or sorry, Gebel Gol Bahar. So is Malta the lost city of Atlantis? We still don't know for sure. There's never been a definitive discovery, only theories and hypothesis, and many even think of Atlantis as a mere myth. But after all, there are many other sites that might qualify for this position. But nonetheless, folks, it's a fascinating theory. Ogigia. Ogigia is an island mentioned in Homer's Odyssey, Book 5, as the home of the nymph Calypso, the daughter of the Titan Atlas. In Homer's Odyssey, Calypso detained Odysseus on Ogigia for seven years and kept him from returning to the home of Ithaca, wanting to marry him. Athena complained about Calypso's actions to Zeus, 
who sent the messenger Hermes to Ogygia to order Calypso to release Odysseus. Hermes is Odysseus's great-grandfather on his mother's side, through Auto, Autolycos. Calypso finally, though reluctantly, instructed Odysseus to build a small raft, gave him food and wine, and let him depart the island. The Odysseus describes Ogygia, or sorry, the Odyssey describes Ogygia as follows. And he, Hermes, found her within. A great fire was burning in the hearth, and from afar over the isle there was a fragrance of cleft cedar and juniper as they burned. But she within was singing with a sweet voice as she went to and fro before the loom, weaving with a golden shuttle. Round about the cave grew a luxuriant wood, alder and popular, and sweet-smelling cypress, wherein birds long of wing were wont to nest, owls and falcons and sea crows, with chattering tongues who ply their business on the sea. And right there about the hollow cave ran trailing a garden vine, in pride of its prime, richly laden with clusters, and fountains four in a row were flowing with bright water hard by one another, turned one this way, one that, and round about soft meadows of violets and parsley were blooming. A long-standing tradition begun by Eurymaeus in the late 4th century BC and su supported by Callimachus endorsed the modern Maltese tradition, identifies Ogygia with the island of Gozo, the second largest island in the Maltese archipelago. The Calypso Cave is believed to be where he was held hostage. The cave overlooks the Ramla Beach in Gozo. So again, folks, as I say, Malta is so ancient that it very well could have been this mythical island from the Odyssey. Now, this is where I was first introduced to some of the things in Malta, and it's a very fascinating tale. And this is a real structure called the Hypogeum. Nothing specific is known about the beliefs or rituals of the Hypogeum's builders. In one of the rooms, statuettes of a sleeping lady were found, and another room was elaborately painted and produces powerful acoustic resonance. Archaeologists think the temple may have been the seat of an oracle, a place to consult with the gods. It has been estimated that more than 2,000 tons of stones would have been needed to be removed for its construction. The structure with magnificent properties is more than 5,000 years old. A prehistoric necropolis yields clues to the ancient use of sound and its effects on human brain activities. Researchers detected the presence of a strong double resonance frequency at 70 hertz and 114 hertz inside a 5,000-year-old mortuary temple on the Mediterranean island of Malta. The Hall Cephalenia Hypogeum is an underground complex created in the Neolithic or New Stone Age period as a depository for bones and a shrine for ritual use, or that's what they believe anyway. A chamber known as the Oracle Room has a fabled reputation for exceptional sound behavior. Now this is what I'd heard about many years ago on an episode of In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. During testing, a deep male voice tuned to these frequencies stimulated a resonance phenomenon throughout the hypogeum, creating bone-chilling effects. It was reported that sounds echoed for up to eight seconds. Archaeologist Fernando Coyambra said that he felt the sound crossing his body at high speed, leaving a sensation of relaxation. When it was repeated, the sensation returned, and he also had the illusion that the sound was reflected from his body to the ancient red ochre paintings on the walls. One can only imagine the experience in antiquity, standing in what must have been somewhat odorous dark and listening to ritual chant while low light flickered over the bones of one's departed loved ones. 
In the publications from the Conference on Archaeoacoustics, which sparked the study, Dr. Pablo Dibertolis reports on tests conducted at the Clinical Neurophysiology Unit at the University of Trieste in Italy. Each volunteer has their own individual frequency of activation, always between 90 and 120 hertz. Those volunteers with a frontal lobe prevalence during the testing received ideas and thoughts similar to what happens during meditation, whilst, whilst those with whose occipital lobe prevalence visualized images. He goes on to state that under the right circumstances, ancient populations were able to obtain different states of consciousness without the use of drugs or other chemical substances. So to my friends at the old 77, and you know, you've done a few shows on shamanism and you know, some of these drugs and spirit journeys and that there's another one for you. As we talked about, uh, when I was on the program, acoustics are an amazing thing. And here's another piece of potential science to back up that maybe acoustics were used for similar purposes in ancient times. The hypogeum is already creepy enough. The darkly lit underground burial cave is confusing, as is with the new structures installed. But can you imagine what it would be like if you had to wander around it with no structures keeping you safe and only a candle as your vision aid? Now, there are some legends around the hypogeum. And again, many of the things you're going to hear on this program, folks, are just that. They're speculation. They may be stories. They may be legends. But I just wanted to bring them to your attention. Legend has it that 30 students on a school outing disappeared along their, with their tour guide into the labyrinthian caves without leaving any trace behind. Search parties were sent out in vain to trace the children. It is said that they became trapped in one of the caves as it collapsed on them. However, it was said that for weeks after the incident, the wailing children could be heard all over the island, in different parts of Paula, without anyone ever locating them or understanding where the sounds came from. All they all stayed, all that these supposed witnesses stated was that the sounds were coming from underground. Now, as I said at the top of the show, folks, giants in Malta are a very big part of their myths and legends and history. Now, the myths and legends of giants are prevalent throughout the world, as we all know. Now, they are just as popular in the Mediterranean as anywhere else, if not more so. Curiously, the last place you would expect to hear tales of giants would be on islands. Small islands have less land, less land to hunt, and less land to gather food. And whether you believe in them or not, a giant of the size of legends, so 10 to 20 feet tall, 800 or more pounds, would eat a massive amount compared to a normal human. Sicily, Sardinia, Malta, and Crete are at the forefront of these tales. Many say it is simply an explanation for superstitious locals of the Neolithic sites. Interestingly enough, it is claimed that the first people who left Sicily for Malta encountered and fought fierce battles with the giants on Malta from the very beginning. As you would expect, there is no shortage of tales of giants on the Isles of Malta. A local legend on Gozo recounts that the first settlers were the children of a giantess. The giantess lived somewhere, very happily in a wood with her son and daughter. One day, some strangers came in a boat, landed and snatched her children away. She only found out after she took them some food at midday. Looking out to sea in her distress, she saw the boat sailing away and realized what had happened. She dove into the water after her offspring and, be and being a giantess, soon caught up with the boat, even though it was by now far away from land. As she held the sides of the boat to pull herself into it, one of the seafarers cut off her hands 
with an axe, and she fell back into the sea and drowned. The boat sailed on and eventually reached the Maltese Islands, where the daughter of the giantess married on Gozo and the son in Mosta, in mainland Malta, begetting the first dynasties. Pediatrician Anton Mifsud has stated that a local workman in Gozo told him that he had found a giant some years ago while excavating the foundations of a building complex. The laborer had hidden the bones so that he would not be stopped by the authorities from continuing his work. From the evidence that he showed Misfood, it is said that it seems that between 4,000 to 6,000 years ago, a man, 2.6 meters tall, which is about 8 feet 8 inches tall, folks, was buried upright in the soil, a true giant indeed. Engravings on slabs at Tarexian also show a number of different Neolithic boats. One has an upturned prow and stern like Egyptian boats, but also similar to the Maltese boats. When the exploration of these sites, so like the Hypogeum and some of the others, began many centuries ago, the excavators lived under the impression that they were erected by an extinct race of giants. In antediluvian times, as is in evidence in printed accounts of the Maltese Islands, published in Lyon in 1536, written by Jean Quintin de Autun, who was auditor to Grandmaster Philippe Villers de l'Isle Adam, most of the excavation work, nevertheless, was carried out from the 19th century onward, so from the 1800s up until now. The first occurred in 1816 to 1826 at the temple complex at Gozo's Gigatija, a site meaning giant's place, reflecting the popular connotations these sites possessed. Many temples also contained statues, though most have been partly destroyed, either by the passing of time or by deliberate acts of destruction at some point in the past. Some of the statues seem to be of giant women with giant breasts, thighs and arms, and one statue at Tarixian has been labeled the Maltese Venus. In origin, the statue would have measured no less than three meters tall, which is well over nine feet tall, folks, but only the lower legs and parts of the skirt remain. Is the statue of a giant woman evidence that this structure was indeed built by giants, or for a mother goddess, or both, or neither? Now, giants in the hypogeum. Due to the lack of and concrete evidence as to who built the hypogeum, and due to its complex megalithic pattern, Giants have been one of the most prevalent of alternative theories as to the builders of this and many of the other Maltese sites. One of the discoveries in the Hypogeum was massive carved stone bowls, the size of a large toilet bowl. Some say that these bowls were actually drinking vessels of these giants. If this is true, then they would have had to have been of the XL variety, so 12 feet or more and 1,000 pounds plus to lift these 100 pound plus bowls with one hand like you or I would lift a coffee cup or a cocktail glass. The most well-known and oft-repeated story of giants to do with the hypogeum, however, is as follows. One of the stories that circles this particular place of power features a British lady, a secret hallway, and mysterious entities. Miss Lois Jessup, working for the British Embassy in Malta, wrote an account of an experience she had inside the hypogeum. She described how, on her first visit in 1931, she convinced the guide to allow her to investigate one of the so-called burial chambers near the floor of the last chamber in the lower level. In her own words, she asked, what's down there? Pointing to a small opening off the walls. To quote her own words, she asked, sorry. To quote from her account, the, the tour guide said, go there at your own risk and you won't go far, he replied. I was wearing a dress with a long sash that day and as I decided to lead the group, 
I asked the fellow behind me to hold on to it. So with a long, so with half-burnt candles in our hands, the four of us started through the low, narrow passageway, groping and laughing our way through. I came out first, of course, onto a ledge pathway only two feet wide, with a sheer drop of 50 feet or more on my right and the wall to my left. I took a step forward, keeping close to the rock wall side. The person behind me, still holding onto my sash, was still in the tunnel. I held my candle higher and peered down into the abyss, thinking that with this dangerous drop, it was better not to go on further without a guide. Then I saw about 20 persons of giant stature emerge from an opening deep below me. They were walking in a single file along another narrow ledge down below. Their height I judged to be about 20 to 25 feet, since their heads came up about halfway on the wall on the opposite side of the cave. They walked very slowly, taking long strides. Then they all stopped, turned, and raised their heads in my direction. All simultaneously raised their arms and with their hands beckoned to me. The movement was something like snatching or feeling for something as the palms of their hands were turned down. Her friends then pulled her back into this reality. Though a sudden draft of air extinguished her candle, making her panic. A few days later, one of the friends of the excursion called her. Remember that tunnel you wanted to explore in the hypogeum? Well, it says here in the local paper that a schoolmaster and 30 students went exploring and apparently got as far as we got. They were roped together with the end of the rope tied to the opening of the cave. As the last student turned the corner where your candle blew out, the rope was clean cut. None of the party was found because the wall caved in. Apparently, for several weeks, the cries of the children could be heard emanating from the underground, but none were ever recovered alive. Eventually, she revisited the hypogeum, only to discover that the tunnel was boarded up and her first guide seemingly never existed. The new guide denied everything. This is the story she told. Local lore commonly states that Malta is riddled with underground tunnels. These supposedly exist in many overlapping layers that intersect and travel far and wide across the country, even beneath the sea all the way to Rome. Now, is this story true? Most likely not, or at least not in any material sense. A cursory Google search does not turn up anything on Miss Jessup except for this story. In its different incarnations across different websites, the hypogeum itself has been extensively researched and no sign of secret passages has been found. So again, folks, you be the judge, but this one sounds like it's an urban myth. Now, folks, one of the reasons why so many people have believed this story to be true for so long is that a two-paragraph part of the story of the children that you know supposedly went missing appeared in the National Geographic in a 1940 issue. Now, there was a story written about Malta, and this was in and around the time of the Axis bombing Malta. So, you know, if it's in the National Geographic, it must be true, right? Look, I'm not saying it's impossible, but there have been a lot of excavations made at the Hypogeum, and there's been little to no sign of there being any kind of hidden tunnels or anything secret. And in that episode of In Search Of that I listened to that would have been done in the 70s, like I said, nobody talked about these giants in the hypogeum. Now, places like Malta that have been settled continually for thousands of years, I've got no doubts that there are all kinds of hidden tunnels underneath the ground in many places like this. So again, who knows, maybe one day we'll find out the truth to it. Now, on to what you heard me discussing before, which was Gigantesia or the Giant's Tower. So once upon a time, Sansuna, a giantess on the island of Gozo, 
went to the town of Tasenk, placed huge stones upon one of her shoulders, and carried them four kilometers to their current resting place at Gigantesia, the place of giants. A multitasker, as we have all known, as we all know, women are better at multitasking, or so they say. She did this while holding her half-giant, half-human baby over her other shoulder. Taking these heavy stones, she then built the temple complex of Gigantesia, and afterwards allowed the local people to worship within. More unusually, she lived exclusively on broad beans and honey, though some versions replaced the honey with water. It is also said that it had served as a defensive tower, again built by a race of giants, as you would expect. So, look folks. There are people, as I say, who get very polarized by hearing about giants. But there are rumors all over the world and stories and legends about giants being in ne nearly every place in the world at some time. So, as always, I reserve judgment and I leave it up to you to make up your own mind. But I, nonetheless, I do find it very interesting that there are so many of these places named the giants this or the giants that. Now... Here's a very interesting one for you. This is the story of Ilgaga. In the past, December the 24th was considered a most unfavorable day for a birth in Malta. According to a superstitious belief that lingered among the Maltese up until the end of the 1800s, any person bo born on Christmas Eve was transformed into a ghost called Ilgaga. On that specific night, in the form of a gaga, they wandered around frightening people. Children were told that if they misbehaved, the Gaga would, would kidnap them and take them far, far away to a distant land where they would die of hunger and loneliness. Towards dawn, the persons transformed into a Gaga turned, returned home exhausted. By the time they woke up in the morning, they would have resumed their human form, quite unaware of their nocturnal uh, pernigrations. The remedy against the transformation consisted of inducing the sufferer to sit up all night and to count the holes of a sieve from 11 o'clock at night to the following Christmas morning. Now, I find that one quite interesting, folks, and I'll tell you why. My friends over at the Quite Unusual podcast were doing an episode about werewolves. And that's one of the legends that they were recounting, and I believe it was in France, that basically werewolves struggled to count past a certain number and if you could keep them occupied until dawn then you know something would you know they would either have to disappear or be transformed back into a human i'm sorry i can't remember it off the top of my head now the one that to me is much more you know burned into my memories is the stories of vampires or vampire in eastern europe now they used to say as protection you would either take poppy seeds or sesame seeds and sprinkle them on your roof. Now, for whatever reason, if a vampire came across poppy seeds or sesame seeds, they felt a strange compulsion to stop and count them. So the idea was if you sprinkled these on your roof and they were coming to get you, they would stop and start counting them and get so transfixed by counting them that by the time they finished counting, the sun would rise and the vampire would be destroyed. So nonetheless, I do find it interesting that in so many of these different seemingly so different creatures, there is an idea that if they got caught doing things like counting, it would have some positive benefit for you. Now, the next story is one of the most popular and oft often repeated Maltese tales. Now, this is much more in the 80s. Uh, 
And this is the story of St. Paul's Island. Now, the country of Malta, as many of you may know, has a deep relationship with Christianity, which according to legend has quite the fantastic start. It is said that Christianity came to Malta with the shipwreck of the Apostle Paul on a small island just off its coast in 60 AD. As told in the Acts of Apostles, Paul was en route to Rome as a political prisoner when the ship he was on got caught in a vicious storm. Its passengers were shipwrecked and washed ashore on an island that's now known as St. Paul's Island. The island lies just across the bay from the town of Bujiba, on the northern coast of Malta. The tale says that once on Malta, the passengers were met and welcomed by the locals under Roman rule. Invited to a fire, Paul was suddenly built by a poisonous snake, but miraculously didn't fall ill. The people saw this as a sign that Paul was indeed an exceptional man. Paul would end up staying on Malta the entire winter and began the spread of Christianity on the island when he healed the Roman chief's father from a fever. It is said that very chief named Publius would become the island's first bishop. Malta would become one of the first Roman colonies to convert, so quite an auspicious start indeed. So, as we bo- as we all know, there are so many religious myths around the world. Uh, it is quite interesting, and you hear a lot of the stories of the apostles and these different myths and legends that have sprung up around them. But Malta is, to this day, heavily Catholic. St. Angelo in Burgu, Vittoriosa. Built around the medieval period as a castle called the Castrum Marius, Castle by the Sea, later rebuilt by the otherwise notorious Order of St. John, during the Great Siege, so this is when the Turks uh, set siege to Malta folks, a few Ottoman soldiers were decapitated and their heads were used as cannonballs. However, this was done because the Ottomans crucified knights, then decapitated them, cut them up and threw them into the Grand Harbor, and the tide would bring them to Burgu. The castle and surrounds is haunted by the headless Ottomans and also by the mysterious Grey Lady. The Grey Lady was a beautiful woman but had a tragic life. She was a mistress of the Dinava family. She was tired of being second best, and the lady went to the house of the nobleman while his wife was there. The nobleman told his guards to, quote, get rid of her, unquote. The guards took it literally and killed her. They dumped her body in a dungeon known as Itokba, or the hole in English. When he found out what the guards had done, he killed them and dumped their bodies in the hole. Now her spirit is exercised. You can stroll the bastions with ease, but keep a lookout for the headless Ottomans. So, you know, (laughs) what place like this wouldn't be complete without a few ghost tales, my friends? Now on to our next tale, which is about San Maria Tavertu. So this chapel is located in Tavertu in Rabat. Set among amazing views and quiet surroundings, the church makes an ideal walk in the countryside. The dome has a statue on the top that makes it altogether macabre. To add another layer of creepy, underneath this chapel are Punic, Roman, and Phoenician tombs, catacombs, and medieval crypts. Don't think this chapel is trying hard enough? Wait for it. It gets better. A priest reportedly haunts the church, where he delivers mass to no one in particular. As if finding a priest ghost saying mass is not enough to freak you out, here is the icing on the cake. In the 1970s and 80s, Satanists consecrated the chapel. To make your blood curl, a number of symbols were carved on its floors, then molten tar was poured into the carvings to make them permanent. Multiple crosses were also turned upside down, and the altars were painted black. Now on to Gar Hassan. Gar Hassan is a magical cave in the south of Malta. The hassle to get to the cave and the eerie sound of waves crashing against the rock formations below 
is enough to make you feel uneasy wandering around the enormous cave. Gar Hassan was named after a Saracen named Hassan. The cave tells the story of how he lusted after a girl from a nearby village and practically kidnapped her. Hassan kept the girl hidden away in this cave, presumably hoping she would get a severe case of Stockholm Syndrome. A group of local farmers found Hassan's hiding place and ambushed him to rescue the girl. Panicked and most probably shitting his pants after he saw the raging farmers, Hassan threw the poor girl off the cliff and jumped right after her. If that isn't true love, folks, I don't know what is. Another version of the tale says that the girl could simply not get herself to develop the much-hoped-for Stockholm Syndrome, so she jumped off the cliff in despair, and Hassan soon followed after her. Now, St. Gregory's Church and the Hidden Tunnels. This story starts in 1969, when a young man named Greju was doing some work on the church dome. Greju got bored and noticed a crack in the wall between some slabs. He threw some rocks in the crack, never imagining what would happen next. He realized from throwing rocks and other things down the cracks that the space inside was way bigger than he had thought. Greju soon realized from the sound of it that it seemed like there was a chamber right underneath the roof. He called his fellow workers, the sacristan, and a priest, and they all proceeded to remove one of the stones to investigate. Greju became the scapegoat of this story, as he was tied to a rope and given a box of matches. Yes, matches. Not a flashlight, a candle, or a lamp, but matches. And was pushed inside the hole to explore whatever treasures these people thought they would find. Needless to say that Greju was left traumatized by what he discovered. A substantial amount of skeletons. Just chilling. These unfortunate souls were said to have been trying to escape a Turkish attack, only to be sealed inside the hidden passage. Starving to death, afraid and trapped, the group of people slowly died, one by one inside the hidden passage, which was ironically built to save them from horrible death or slavery. So that's a creepy one, folks. Here he thinks he's going to go inside and find treasure, and instead all he finds are a bunch of skeletons of all these people who basically slowly starved to death while trying to hide. Now, this, is, this one's definitely got an October feel to it, and this is a very local legend of Malta, and this is Ilhars, which is the Maltese ghost. In the old days, most houses in Malta were blessed with their very own Ilhars. Ilhars was reported, at times, as being playful, sometimes mischievous, often scary, and once in a while, downright nasty. They were also described as sneaky, to say the least. Ilhar's favorite tricks were rattling pots and pans, furniture, and turning into vicious dogs to scare children and other pets. In the Maltese language, the word Hars means look or watch, and that's how everybody's favorite ghost got its name, Ilhars, the Watcher. Children were led to believe that Ilhars could see everything, which put a damper on any mischief one might have wanted to indulge in, knowing all along that Ilhars was there to witness your every move. In the village of Gudja, as in other small villages in Malta, one of the favorite summer activities of children was to raid local vineyards. August is not only the month of Il Fiesta Ta Santa Maria, which is celebrated throughout the island, it is also the magical month during which local grapes become ripe for the picking. Children from older generations could never resist the temptation to pick those delicious grapes and run a, a lot of times from irate farmers chasing them. Farmers throughout the area devised elaborate plans to stop the raids, with no success, except for one lucky fellow. He had an ill horse to guard his field. 
This particular farmer's land of eight toma, which is 2.25 acres, was on the outskirts of Gudja, where he lived with his family in the shadow of one of the island's prettiest chapels, known as Ilknista Toleretu. On the north bank of the valley is where our lucky farmer lived. No one dared to trespass on his property because it was well known. It was a well-known fact that Ilhars would be there to thwart any intruders. This Ilhars was the soul of a young Ottoman sailor who was part of the Turkish Armada, which mounted the Great Siege of Malta in 1565. Legend had it that his name was Ali ibn Ali. At 22, Ali was a hardened sailor, having sailed under the great Turkish corsair Barbarossa, the scourge of the Mediterranean. Ali had volunteered his service to Piala Pasha, the grandson of Suleiman the Magnificent. Thus, Ali found himself among Piala's formidable fleet of 138 galleys that launched the great assault on the island of Malta, the last great bastion in the Middle Sea, not under the control of the Turkish Empire. Now, from memory, folks, that would have been about 1540, 15, somewhere between 1530 and 1550 is when the Turks uh, launched this invasion of Malta. The fleet put into Marsalox Bay and landed its force of some 38,000 men. Ali was one of a small party of scouts sent out by their commander, Mustafa Pasha, a mean and dour old man. Ali and his mates were ambushed in the olive grove of the Church of San Girgor at Zechuj by the Maltese villagers who handed them over to the Knights of Malta at their fort in Il Isla, now known as Singlia. While imprisoned, Ali was assigned to menial tasks, but in general he was treated rather humanely by his captors. He fell in love with a young Maltese girl, who along with other Maltese women, was helping the Knights prepare for the impending battle. The Turks decided to attack Fort St. Elmo, a strategic position from which the Knights commanded both Grand Harbor and Maxmet Harbor. It was a big mistake. Fierce bombardments were launched against St. Elmo, which was defended by 100 knights and about 500 soldiers. For 36 days, the assault raged. 8,000 invaders, including the great drug himself, lost their lives. In spite of the valiant defense, Fort St. Elmo succumbed to the ceaseless onslaught. Only five defenders managed to escape by swimming across the Grand Harbor to Singlia. Nine knights were taken prisoners and ransomed. The rest who managed to survive were beheaded. Their bodies were tied to wooden crosses and thrown into the sea. When the knights at Singlia saw the drifting bodies, they were so enraged that they retaliated by beheading every Turkish prisoner and using their heads as cannonballs. Ali wasn't spared. When the jailer's blade came rushing at his neck, his last glimpse was that of his beloved, her face in awe, tears streaming down her tanned face. Ali's soul refused to leave. The fighting raged on until at last, on September 7th, a relieving force of 9,000 men landed at Malia Bay. The Turks received the news from their scouts and, overestimating the strength of the newcomers, decided to end, end the siege the next day. To this day, the 8th of September is celebrated as the national holiday of Malta, the day of victory. Once peace was secured, the local people returned to their homes in the villages be, beyond Siglia. Ali's beloved got married and moved with her husband to the pastoral land in the vicinity of Bir Muftav, between what is now the village of Gudja and the town of Luka. The ghost of Ali followed them. Now in Ilhars, Ali found that his beloved name was Maria. She bore an only son who followed in his father's footsteps. He raised his herd of goats and tilled the fertile land. He too took a wife and in turn bore an only son who followed the paternal tradition of farming. All along, Ali kept a close watch over the family's land. 
through the centuries, each succeeding generation produced an only son who continued with his father's occupation. Ali watched over all of them. Ali became quite adept at ghostly tricks. He learned how to appear mean without being cruel, how to imitate the great winds, how to produce snakes out of twigs and hornets out of a bunch of grapes. And he had fun, but he knew that sooner or later, his role as an Ilhars would come to an end. During World War II, for the first time since he had moved to his haunts with his beloved, this generation produced a girl, now a beautiful lady of 22, an image of his beloved Maria. She was betrothed to a young Englishman, a captain in the Royal Marines on war service in Malta. Ali knew that her marriage would signal the start of a new cycle and the end of his service. While musing on whether or not to call on his master and ask that his mission be ended, two sailors who were somewhat intoxicated stumbled through the gate of the property. On seeing the beautiful young lady, Conceta was her name, they dashed towards her and grabbed her in ungentlemanly fashion. Ali sensed danger. He promptly appeared in front of the two intruders, resplendent in his Turkish garb with a scimitar in his belt. The sailors gulped, confused, and uttered salty language. They rushed out and ran all the way back to their barracks at Kelfrana. Conceta couldn't believe her eyes, but she had heard that the farm was protected by an Ilhars, who many had seen. She felt that he was a friend and asked him if he was their farm's celebrated ghost. Ali confirmed that indeed he was. He told her all about his short life. Then he led her to the farmhouse and told her that it was time for him to leave forever. With his scimitar, he dug a hole in the front of the house. In the hole, he placed the sword like a cross, marking a grave. With a swish, he disappeared down the hole. The scimitar followed him. In its place, a small tree trunk appeared and began to grow and climb against the wall. It was a flowery vine of Stephanus, Stephanitis. Sorry. Conceta's wedding bouquet was made from the fragrant flowers of this tree. Now, that's a very touching tale, folks, and I've got one more here about the Ilhars. And this is the story of the Ilhars and the buried treasure. Now, this intriguing tale took, has taken many shapes and forms over the years. Most famously, it's the tale of a Turkishman, very similar to Ali. Iltork was generally a harmless creature who seemed to spend most of his time playing with children, hiding treasures, and turning money into snails for those who were unfortunate enough to get on his wrong side. We don't know why, but we guess he was quite a passive-aggressive ghost. <laughs> a legend at Fort Riscali says that Ilhars had shown two men the location of a treasure. The two men stupidly told everyone about the treasure, something that Hars clearly told them not to do. As later on that night, when they returned for the treasure, they only found coal. Later on during the night, in true Ilhar's fashion, he reappeared and gave them a good beating. Since Fort Riscali isn't creepy enough, what with people getting locked and beaten in caves nearby, now we have a vindictive hares added to the mix too. So hopefully you enjoyed those ghost tales, folks. I'm always intrigued by some of these old ghost tales and legends. As I say, you know. Who knows what's true about them and, and, and what's, you know, made up over time, but I always find them quite interesting. And finally, Malta is not immune to the most intriguing mystery of modern times, in my humble opinion, the ubiquitous UFO. According to website UFO Sightings Daily, Malta is an ideal location for spotting alien objects, as the tiny island off the coast of North Africa is surrounded by sea on all sides and is often frequented by sunny, clear skies. A 2012 witness, 29-year-old Zvort Ertfe, quickly interrupted a brisk walk on the Quara seafront in Malta 
when he spotted an unidentified flying object hovering over the horizon and took a photo with his mobile phone. He was unable to make out what it was, except that it was triangular in shape, dark, and flying at high speed. I was out walking when all of a sudden, I saw something appear in the sky. It disappeared in a matter of a few seconds, said Mr. Erdfe from Romania, who was in Malta visiting friends. The sighting happened on a Thursday evening at dusk. Mr. Erdfe estimates it was sometime around 8 p.m. So from the very ancient mystery of Atlantis and of giants to the conspiracy theory of all, as some have called the UFO phenomenon, one of the oldest settled regions in Europe truly has something for everyone who celebrates the thought-provoking, fantastic, and downright creepy. And I hope you've enjoyed the journey. It's been my pleasure to bring this to you folks. I've really enjoyed my investigation of the islands of Malta. And as I say, I've always found this area intriguing. I'd love to be able to go there one day. And as you can imagine, an island chain that small with that many people packed on it for at least 8,000 years is bound to be full of all kinds of histories, mysteries, and intrigue. And I found it quite, quite uh, informative doing the investigation. So I hope that you've enjoyed the program. And as I say, don't forget, uh, moving forward after this week, the next four weeks will be a Halloween theme. So they'll all have to do something that's got to do with Halloween that I think that you will definitely agree is, you know, Halloween themed for most people. And I'll probably cut down a bit on the news of the damned as well, but we'll just see for the next month that is. Anyway, folks, with that, I hope that you have a great week. I hope you enjoy yourself. And to leave you, as always, with the quote from Art Bell, that is, a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. Take care, folks, and I'll talk to you soon.